All right, so I guess we, cat's out of the bag, it's Jeremiah 33. We're trucking along, made good, making good progress. Um, cha- Jeremiah 33 is not as long as the past two chapters, so um, Lord willing, I won't hold you over past the bottom of the hour. Um, so in this chapter, we come to a, a strong ending of the Book of Consolation. So if you recall, the Book of Consolation is chapters 31, to 33 within the book of Jeremiah. And it's just, you know, some theologians giving a heading to these chapters, frankly. It's, we see um, the Lord's intentional wording of what he's going to do in restoring these people in the midst of judging them, in the midst of, um, you know, bringing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians upon them. And so that there is hope that he will preserve the, the line of that godly seed. It focuses on, in this chapter, uh, the work of God through um, the Davidic Messiah. And we'll, we'll get into that in this chapter. And, of course, that restoration that he's going to bring when he brings the people back. It uh, does continue the theme that we had in, in chapter 32. Um, and these, these good times to come and these fortunes that will be restored to them. So continuing, it rolls right smoothly from chapter 32. Uh, it brings us also a bit clearer in focus in terms of God's really global plans um, for restoration. Now, ancient Israel at this point didn't quite understand that to the extent that it came to the Gentiles. Um, but indeed, it's in there, as we look always back in the Old Testament through a New Test- Old Testament through the New Testament lens, and we see this uh, in verse nine as we go through it. So, let's go ahead and jump into this um, first nine verses of chapter thirty-three. Focus on the land of Judah, city of Jerusalem, and its surrounding cities and villages. About the judgment God's going to bring and the consequential rebuilding when he restores them. So let's go ahead and, and look into that. Verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. 
I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. All right, so I hope you noticed like there around in what we see in, in verse 6, this, this abrupt change um, from uh, God's, the, the, the judgments that's coming upon them that they're seeing before their eyes to the health and healing he's going to bring to them. There's, there's that vast change, and that vast change really is carried throughout the rest of the chapter. So we start off in this chapter seeing Je- Jeremiah is in the same situation he was in in chapter 32 at the beginning of that. You know, he's in confinement. He's in the courtyard of the guard. Um, whether this is, if you recall, how we kind of talked about how the phases of his imprisonment with went, um, not sure if this is his first confinement in the courtyard of the guard or the second confinement, but um, most likely it's his second confinement considering the progression of where we are. So walking through this passage, there, there's so much here to, to un- unpack. Um, in verse 2, this, this uh, powerful statement about God that's, that's in here. You know, this, this God, the Lord who made the earth, now, it's a little trivia here. It's a translator's supplement that the word the earth is put into this text because in the Hebrew it just says it. In fact, if you look there in, your, um, in, in verse 3, it says it three times. You know, of what God has done, what God is doing. Um, he's, he's made it. He's formed it. He's establishing it. Now, this points to God's sovereignty and his power over all things. And he is creator. Uh, refers to the plans of God. That they will, will stand because he's established them. Nothing can stand in his way of what he does. Um, if he wants to form it, he has formed it. That was his will. Um, and so it will come to pass. In verse 3, we see a beautiful promise, and we'll touch on that a little bit at the end of this. The people of God are invited to call upon him, Um, and that's no small thing. Uh, It says, call to me, and I will answer you. It's clear instruction for us today, even, you know. Uh, They are called and invited to put forward to him their situation. Um... Is it going to stop the judgments that's coming? No, clearly not. We, we've seen that already transgress, or not transgress, um, progress through this book as Jeremiah himself is at times prayed for the people and for God's hand to be stayed even though he said, don't pray for them. I'm, I'm going to do this. But he still calls on the people to, to call out to him because he is their God and he wants to change their hearts. Um, they need to understand that if there's assistance that's needed, they need to seek it from him. And so it is an invitation for them to seek him in sincere and humble prayer. 
as he has been teaching them through the prophets throughout these centuries, you know, with a right heart, not just with these, these outward actions that they claim is what, what, you know, what is good enough, that God himself is being unjust because they're doing all these things, but they're doing it from a wrong heart, okay? Verses 4 and 5, uh, this is really um, something that we should, when we go into and read it, uh, it, it should strike us a little bit because what we see here is what happens when God hides his face. That's a scary thing. Now, for those of us in Christ, we know, uh, and even the remnant here who were of the Old Testament church, who believed in the Messiah to come, uh, we know that we will not be forsaken or condemned. Um, there were many believers, and it's hard for us to understand this at times, that the faithful that were amongst these in Jerusalem suffered greatly. If they weren't exiled, they died horrifically. They, um, in, a, in a hard way. I don't exactly know how God would have, how, how the people that really followed him suffered in this way. Were they only exiled? I don't know. But being in and amongst the people, a wicked people, um, just like we're citizens of this United States of America, um, what comes upon a nation, you know, we're, as citizens of that nation, we suffer as well. But we have hope. And God is speaking to them, saying, I will restore you. And they, they see things in the context that they understand them, as how God is revealed to them throughout the Old Testament. And so they see the, the promises that were made to Abraham and to David about a, a king always being on the throne, about the, what it means to be connected to the land. And so they see those blessings, those promises, as being connected to the land, right? We understand these things now, and truly, this is pointing to an ultimate fulfillment in Christ, but we also look forward to that, that final consummation of all things when Christ returns, as we are sojourners in this land. So it is a humbling thing to understand what it means when God hides his face. And how does that work in our lives as a believer? God doesn't forsake us. We know that. So what's it mean? How does, we, we do feel times it could be because of sin. Sometimes it's a testing of, of patience and faith where we don't hear God at all. But God doesn't change. We change. You know, we come to him in humility, seeking to understand where it is that possibly we need to repent or just trust without doubting. Um, so... We continue in, 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 in similar ways in our suffering for Christ's sake uh, to seek out God and his face. Now, these people at this time were in a very uh, horrible situation. You know, the three favorite things that Jeremiah liked to say about sword, pestilence, and famine, they were living it out. It was very real to them. Um, something we, right, thankfully, are, are not having to deal with. This, in the passage here, it talks about these houses being torn down. The royal house, the king's palaces, you know, his house is being torn down. You know, 
these very same houses, it says, are, are the very places that will be filled with the corpses of those who the Lord will slay in his anger and great wrath. And so God is once again telling them through the prophet that he's going to carry out, he's going to continue the judgment that he has said that is going to come upon them, those covenantal threats. Um, and so certainly the Babylonians did carry out their wickedness at God's decree. And then we see that transition in, in verse 6, in uh, verse 7 really also. You know, this major transition from the horrors of judgment um, that we just read about in, in verses 1 through 5. What we see here in these verses is health, healing, prosperity, abundance. This to be realized in comparison to what we just saw. You know, dead bodies filling these houses that were torn down to help patch in the walls that have been wrecked by the siege. They were literally tearing up the homes and using these, these stones from the king's houses that were, you know, solid stones and tearing them out to patch up um, the breaches. And the Lord was saying that, you know, their, their, their bodies, their dead bodies are going to fill these things that they're, they're tearing up. God will judge them. And then there's this shift, shift away from that scene to these fortunes that are going to be restored to them. Homes will be built again. You know, we talked about last week how Jeremiah was told to go buy land, land that was at that time occupied by the Babylonians. There will be a restoration. There will be a reversal of this tearing down. You know, God is faithful to his promises to the very end. In verse 8, he says he will cleanse them of the guilt of sin. Pointing to really their deeper need of, of spiritual cleansing. Only the one true God who made them, who formed them and established them, who made the earth and the heavens, only he can forgive sin. And so he cleanses them. He promises he will cleanse them of the filthiness of their sin. It has polluted them. It has defiled them. It has made them to believe the lies that sin carries with it. These lying prophets who prophesy peace, peace, when there is no peace. It made them trust in their own works. It makes us trust in our own works and believe in the lies. And in the most subtle ways, it makes them shift their dependence upon, from God and upon their own works. God is not honored in that. And it, really, it led them to a rebellion of the heart, of at the very least of the heart. And ultimately, it resulted in the death of so many and their exile. In verse 9, he talks about, it's a beautiful verse here because it points to what it means to be found in God. The city itself will bear his name. 
they will go f from a, 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 for a period of forgiveness in their lives of God's forgiving them and cleansing them to these great blessings of restoration. And we look forward to that we, we, as we sojourn here and, and we have these sufferings and we look forward to the Lord coming back to these to the new heaven and new earth. But first there was the forgiveness that was necessary. And then we see that in verse 8. And then after that was joy, praise, and glory. Um, this city, um, John McKay, or Mackay, noted, he said, it will be earning itself, well, rather be given, not earned, it will be given a reputation that causes God to rejoice in it. You know, when I was reading this verse, I couldn't help thinking of that song by John Newton about glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. Um, and it talks about in that, in that song, you know, how he formed thee for his own, abo his own abode, the city, Zion. Uh, it's founded on the rock of ages, it says, and what can shake thy sure repose? Um, what is true of that city is even more true of us as a people of God, as we are found in our identity in him, in his son. It's something we take for granted. The peace that the Lord provides for his people it comes after chastisement for sin. It's not that peace that the false prophets were preaching or what they were trying to predict. But it is a peace that endures and lasts forever. It's, it's the true thing. It's the reality. Um, and this city shall bear his name. And it touches on it more in the second half of this chapter, and we'll get to that here in a minute. So let's go to the next section. Let's go to this joy that we see in the city in verses 10 and 11. It says, Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. There is a huge change in the hearts of the people because of God's work in them. You know, verses, these verses here, along with um, verses 12 and 13, and they could have been written by the prophet immediately after the city was sacked, after the siege played itself through. Um, you know, God acknowledges what the prophet says. We see in verse 10, it says, The city is a waste, no man or beast. You know, it could be very well that this is at the end. 
that this is being composed. You know, God himself is no longer quoting the prophet at this point. He says, he claims himself that the streets have been made desolate. So we're seeing some of the harshest part of the judgment uh, come to fruition at this point. Um, But he says there's going to be sounds of joy again that's going to be heard in the city of this mirth. You know, God, it is, we are seeing here, he's the one who gives good gifts. Uh, they, they come from him from above, as we got to talk about in James recently. They come from him. They are, they are good and they are perfect. And we see that God is for his people. He's not against them. Not forever will God be angry with them. He said that multiple times. You know, for us, again, in the New Covenant, we, we don't fear any condemnation. You know, God's chastisements, even his chastisements and the, the judgment that we receive as the church of God now, although painful, they result in glory and honor and joy. You know, a lot of this, friends, we're not going to get to see and understand this side of heaven. But we, we learn to trust that if, again, I've said it before, if God doesn't receive all the glory that he is due, there is no happiness for us into eternity. And and God uses suffering for his purposes. Now, at the end of this section here, in verse 11, in the latter part of it, we see this doxology, really. Um, after hearing the Lord speak and respond, uh, there can't not be helped but a response of glory and praise, praise and honor being lifted up to him. His stead, the the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We've seen many times the prophet go through times of lament and, and then at the end of it recognize what a great God he serves. The next section, verses 12 and 13, we see it's a very short piece here about some abundance. There's a joyful abundance given in the Lord. It says in verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast and in all of its city, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. I love the way the Lord here describes the peace that will come to the land. These things, this part of the vocation of a shepherd cannot happen in the midst of, uh, of chaos. And they will learn in exile to long for that day again where they can be a shepherd. You know, this does have some theological implications as well into the, we consider the shepherds of the people. 
and how they have failed. You know, not only will they come to a, a, what we have here is a picture of security and contentment, but not only will we see shepherds being able to, again, count their flocks, there will be uh, shepherds that will be given who care for the people. And friends, we're in that day now. You know, the, that new covenant that was talked about two chapters ago. You know, God has given us shepherds to care for us and watch over us. Um, this counting of the sheep as they pass under their hand so that not one of them is missing. You know, all right, I should have 100. I only count 99. Where's that lost sheep? Now, this is the grace of God, and they will get to have that again, something they haven't had in a very long time, but in spurts and in, in, in short periods of time. They will have shepherds that care for them individually. At the, that each sheep will be cared for. We see here that the new covenant is a better covenant because of what God has done in the heart and the word that he's implanted upon the hearts. And something Jeremiah has again already been talking about there in Jeremiah 31. Uh, Hebrews 8 verse 6 talks about this, how it is a better covenant established by Christ. In fact, you know, I want to read a little bit what Jeremiah has already said back in chapter 23. Verse 4 says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall be, and now shall any be missing, declares the Lord. And this is exactly what the prophet was talking about earlier. God will do this. He is doing it. And we progress now to the second part of this, of this chapter. And it really focuses on the Davidic Messiah. And so we're going to break this up into a few pieces. Let's read verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. In verse 14, we see very clearly the Lord God is faithful to keep his word. He's going to do what he says. We know that if he didn't do that, all would be hopeless. You know, if there was even one slight failure in all of history of God doing what he said he was going to do, it would be utter chaos. We could not count on him for anything. One failure, but he has not failed in anything. He has never failed us. There's not one thing that we can say that he's failed us in. We make our God too small, people. We make him too small. There's nothing that he will fail in. So why do we doubt God in the 
small things in the big things. You know, these, I've mentioned it earlier, these doubts often come in these subtle shifts in what we're depending upon. You know, we miss this resting in the power of the Holy Spirit because we're not depending upon him. You know, our lack of dependent faith it hampers the work of the Spirit in our lives. By God's decree, he has ordered it so that by faith we live. And that is what glorifies and honors him because it means we're trusting him to do what he said he will do, even though the things around us don't look like they, they should, even though Jeremiah himself was, even came to a point of questioning what's going on in, in regards to that, the buying of the land, if you recall that part of the narrative. You know, why, why would I do that when it's worthless? Will there really be anything to come home to? Well, we have the benefit of reading back and seeing even in, in extant sources that, yeah, they did come back to the land. God is faithful. In verse 15, we see that the justice and righteousness that the people, uh, even the leaders, said was missing will be greatly manifested in the coming of Christ, in the Messiah, the, the righteous branch. You know, if you recall back when we were going through Malachi, they accused God of being unjust. And what happened, what we saw was the Lord did come. He talked about it in, in chapter 3 of Malachi. He will send the Lord. He will send Christ. Christ will come, and he will be a refiner, and he will be swift in his justice. Not like what they were hoping, as we know as the Lord dealt with the Pharisees and the like. Um, but this justice and righteousness God will bring. And it's often when it's not sought in sincerity and humility, we're the ones that it's being uh, corrected in that work of God. And it can be painful. And finally, in verse 16, the city of Jerusalem, Zion, will become, uh, come to bear the name, the Lord is our righteousness. Now, this is the same title, the Lord is our righteousness, that was given to the Messiah back in chapter 23. It was ascribed to the Messiah, the Lord is our righteousness, and now it's being ascribed to it, i.e. the city. It will bear that name. It's transferred from the Messiah to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Machai, he, quote, he, he noted, he commented on this. He said, if the title referred, if it referred to the fact that the Messianic king would be the very embodiment of the truth, that the Lord is the one who provides and is the one who constitutes that everyone who is involved in what he is, in his plans in terms of righteousness for his people. In other words, being identified in him. Then the restored and renewed city of Jerusalem will also embody that truth as well. As we ourselves bear the name of Christ and as Christians, you know, the city itself would, be, would resemble the Lord their God. That is an amazing work considering what they've come from. 
in the wickedness that there was in them. And we know that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ and, and um, him, him making things all new someday. Verses 17 through 22 focus on the eternal king and priest. Let's read those verses. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Friends, that is only seen in the new covenant promises. It's packed full of promises here in this section. Uh, the, you could just go to the book of Hebrews and read that, you know, that often called a sermon, how it just expands upon what's being prophesied here. In, in verse 17, David, um, he earlier cited something similar to his son Solomon on his deathbed. If we see in 1 Kings Chapter 2, verse 4. It says that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay, pay, pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God's promise and covenant made to David is being spoken here. God hasn't forgotten that. He will make it so. You know, what, in verse 18, what to do, what do we do with the statement made about the perpetuity of the Levitical priests and the sacrifices? As we know the sacrifices don't continue, as certainly they understood it, as you know, the, the temple and their services are no longer there. It, they, it will never come back. The Lord will return. So what, what's, what's this talking about? Again, I'll go to the wisdom of John McKay. He said, with the greater light given by the New Testament revelation, you know, looking at this, again, through New Testament lenses, it can be seen that just as it was indicated that the provision of the rulers would culminate and the righteous branch, the, the line of the Davidic kings would find their culmination in Christ himself. He is the ultimate fulfillment here. Who is the consummation of the Davidic promise and king of kings. And we see this also talked about in Revelation 19. So likewise, it has become clear that the consummation of the priestly promise is also to be found in the Messiah. In Revelation 5, verse 10, it says, Furthermore, because of the union be between Christ and his people, they are granted the same status he himself has. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Christ 
is the end of all these sacrifices. He offered up once and for all his blood. And he serves as the great high priest. And Peter talks about this. Paul talks about how we um, in Christ individually and uh, cooperatively as the church serve as priests ministering before him. You know, giving up, living our lives as a daily sacrifice to him. This is all realized in that work that came about through Christ and his spirit given to us. God is faithful to do what he said he's going to do, and he is doing it now in our lives. Just as he said he would do for them and bringing them back. In verses 19 through 22, we find that they echo They repeat the solid, fixed promises of God that he gave again in chapter 31, that that often referred to chapter in all of the Bible. When it talks about the new covenant, the certainty of it, how he will establish that new covenant. He talks about the covenant with the night and day. This is referring back to the covenant that God made with Noah, where he guaranteed the regular succession of day and night that he instituted at creation. It will continue. It will continue day and night, summer, fall, winter, spring. It will continue. Genesis 8 verse 22 says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's what he told Noah. And then we also see this covenant with David in here. This covenant uh, being, but we already talked pretty good about that already. But in the covenant with the Levitical priests as well. In Numbers 25, verses 10 through 13, we go into that narrative. I'm sure you guys might remember as I bring it to your memory. Uh, the promise that was given to Phineas, um, one of the sons of Levi, that he and his descendants should have the priesthood as their rightful possession is termed by my covenant of peace and a covenant of lasting, a lasting priesthood. That's what he told them in Numbers 25. You know, Phineas, he had that zeal come up over him as they were in the wilderness and as they passed by Peor and they talked to how they, the Israelites hoard with the, um, the the daughters of Moab. And then, you know, after all this, this, we see this Israelite man come into the, into the camp with this Midianite woman and to do things he shouldn't be doing. Let's just put it that way. In his tent. And Phineas grabs a spear and impales them through their bellies. Um, and because of the zeal, righteous zeal that he displayed, God made this promise to him that there would always be um, this covenant of lasting priesthood. And that is kept true in Christ himself after the order of Melchizedek. All right, let's wrap things up. In verses 23 through 26, we see the covenant succession. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus, 
They have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and fill and fixed and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of, Dave, of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Once again, we see God here saying, you know, things that we know will continue and, and based on my solid promises. If, if those won't happen, then my son, the Messiah, will not come. It's, it's again, another example of um, how we see an a incontrovertible fact will not be reversed. It would have to, uh, you know, the, the heavens, the stars would have to fall down before these things wouldn't come true. Now, when we read verse 24, and let me say it, read it again. It says, have you not observed that these people, what, what they're saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose. Thus they have despised my people so that they no longer a nation in their sight. When you read that, at least when I read that, I'm a, um, it's a little confusing. Who are these people that he's referring to? Um, it's not completely clear at the first reading, but it, it is the people of Judah themselves. The people of Judah themselves, as they, in a despairing way, conclude that the Lord has abandoned them and will have nothing more to do with them. Remember, as far as they understand, if they don't have the temple and the sacrifices, how can God be for them? That's the way they serve him. So if they don't have those means, how does any of this make sense in exile? Or how does it, you know, if the Lord destroys anything, surely he will abandon us. They are saying these things. The two clans are saying these things. And God recognizes it. He hears them saying these things. The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose is what they believe. You know, Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms. The Babylonians despise his people. Uh, they no longer regard them as a nation. The people that surround them, the nations no longer regard them as a nation. That's how they assess them and the, and the fate that's come about them when they look upon the condition that they're in. It sounds a bit like what we were seeing in our small group with Job, how his friends are um, not helping him. They see his condition and think God's abandoned them. That's not true. God's telling them this. You know, God provides these contrary-to-fact conditions to demonstrate his love for his people, that their fortunes will be restored and there will be mercy granted. Uh, he will reverse this judgment upon his people and his grace and commitment will ensure that they will be kept as a people of God. They will continue as a nation, even if it's just as a small time before God makes a nation 
for himself out of all the peoples of the world who come to him by his grace. Let me wrap up here. Um, and I want to do something a little different here this time, kind of a little bit plug for a book that we have uh, called The Family Worship Bible Guide. Um, it has some comments on every chapter of the Bible, small things. So as you're leading your family through, through worship, um, it, it gives you a little bit of a, a addendum here. And let me, I want to share which is, what's in Jeremiah th- uh, 33 about this. Um, at first it points to... Um, Let me just read here. It says, verse 3, if we go back to verse 3, let me read that. Look in your Bibles there. It says, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you the great and hidden things that you have not known. We talked about how this is a beautiful promise of God. It says, verse 3 is surely one of the great prayer promises in the Bible. The Lord invites, indeed he commands, he commands us unto him with the assurance that he will answer in ways that exceed our expectations. Now we see that also in Ephesians 3 verse 20, which says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He is a God who loves to hear and answer prayer. This is a great incentive for us to love him and call upon him habitually. He does not say, I might, but I will answer you. He will not refuse when we ask in the right way, with, in faith, without doubting. And then it goes on, another note. It says, the promises of the branch, the righteous branch, that we saw in verses 15 and 16. Uh, these promises sum up the great gospel truth of justification. By the righteousness of Christ alone, he satisfied every demand of the law for us and paid the penalty for our transgression. His name is our only hope of salvation, for his righteousness covers believers with his beauty in God's sight. We are accepted in the beloved. How can that give you joy? It's really a good takeaway for us here in in this chapter. And um, I wanted to share it with you. Uh, it's, I don't know if, I think we have some copies left. Uh, but it's called Family Worship Bible Guide um, by Reformed Heritage Books. Um, as you're walking your family through the scriptures, and um, I think um, you guys are using it too sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's for the most time, it, it, most part, it's pretty spot on. All right, we'll close there.